Hello, and welcome to Ask Matt. I'm Eugene Cordero, Professor of Meteorology and Climate Science at San Jose State and Founder and Director of Green Ninja. I'm here with Matt Delasio, Geology Professor from Cal State Northridge, National NGSS expert, and one of the chief authors of the 2016 California Science Framework. The format of this podcast is that I ask Matt questions about science, science education, and NGSS, and we'll all learn something more about science education and how to make this transition to the next generation science standards easier and more rewarding for everyone. If you have any of your own questions, just send them to info at greenninja.org, and I'll share some of them with Matt in a future episode. So let's get started. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's good to be with you. And nice to have you here. So um, as you well know, Matt, we have had a big election a couple of weeks ago. And so in today's episode, I want us to talk about the election, both from our own perspective, but also how this may influence the science classroom and how teachers can use the election as a learning opportunity for their students. So let's get started, Matt. As many of our listeners may remember, your wife Lorraine ran for LA City Council in a special election earlier this year. Uh, she ran a very close race, but came up a bit short in the end, although I know there was some controversy as well. So for our listeners here, Matt, can you share any updates on Lorraine's campaign and, and where we're at right now? Okay. Well, if any of you are tired of election season, let me tell you, it's been uh, two years in our household of solid elections. Uh, uh, so we're definitely tired of it and happy that uh, things are, are over. But uh, Lorraine uh, actually stopped running her election uh, in March where she lost the runoff election that they had at that time, basically, uh, 49.4 to 50.6%. So a little bit more than a percent, about 800 votes between her and her opponent and uh, super close. And uh, it was the first time LA had done their elections with these vote centers, which uh, mean that people can vote in any vote center in all of LA County. Uh, which was a really great idea, but uh, in practice, it turned out that there was uh, there were really long lines. It was the first time they did it, and they didn't do it very well the first time around. And so, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people that would have we think would have voted for Lorraine didn't make it to uh, the polls because they just didn't want to wait. So that was sad. Uh, and then I could tell you a sad story that went on that six days after the election, her opponent was named in a federal indictment of corruption uh, in the L.A. City Council. And there was there are many podcasts talking about this. Uh, and uh, he ended up not being charged, but uh, was one of many named people uh, that did some things that were kind of shady. And so they're they're still uh, sorting through all of that. And it's still possible that he will be charged. But that was an indictment that was written and sealed six or a couple of months before the election, and they didn't announce it until six days after. So we were a little bit frustrated that that was uh, done that way, because I'm sure that could have swayed the results by a few votes here and there, and, and mm -hmm. uh, that was it. So lots of exciting things going on with it, to be sure. But uh, she was she was uh, lampooned for being a out-of-touch scientist, and uh, that was one of the things that they tried to do. Uh, this is uh, some one of her opponents at one point put out a mailer saying, our city is not an experiment. So that was the uh, anti-science sort of bend that they put on things from that election. Mm. So it was, uh, I, but on, on the other hand, I think a lot of folks were really proud of the campaign that she and your family were able to run and, and to have a scientist doing so well and, and building such support among many, many people. I mean, that was pretty amazing. 
Yeah, well, we are very proud of the fact that many of the people that worked on Lorraine's campaign were new to working on campaigns. They were grassroots activists, and they went on to uh, work on other campaigns in this November election. And we feel like we are responsible in some way for launching a movement that got several other people, including an L.A. City Council member, uh, Nithya Raman, uh, was, uh, was elected uh, by a pretty strong majority and with many of the same people that worked for on Lorraine's campaign that learned from that experience and uh, went on to really to really push Nithya over the, the finish line and she's going to be a really exciting force on on the city council so oh, that's uh, wonderful. it's there, there are many silver linings uh, and and many sad tales <laughs> yeah was Lorraine at all involved in the 2020 November elections uh, she put in a lot of time working with a number of different uh, campaigns and uh, for ballot propositions and also uh, for uh, our local congressional candidate, Christy Smith, who is currently down by 104 votes oh out of gosh. more than 320,000 votes cast. And it's down to literally the wire. And uh, we are still helping out as there are a number of people filled out absentee ballots uh, with signature mismatches or missing signatures and other things. And they still have 24 days to fix those problems. Uh, and they, you know, we, we, were, we need to find all those voters uh, because many of those people will, you know, can make up the difference. In fact, actually, uh, this weekend, the campaign uh, went and knocked on doors and got, I think we turned in uh, number 106. So at least 106 ballots were cured, assuming that the other person didn't make up any ballots. Uh, that, that's the difference right there. But there are still some more ballots to count. There's still quite a few more. Wow, gosh. In your family, there's always this interesting, uh, especially over the last couple of years, it's been interesting. And I remember talking to you and, and how you were analyzing data and looking at, uh, at spreadsheets of numbers as part of you know building a strategy of how to connect with voters. And so it certainly required folks from with lots of different backgrounds to make so much progress. Absolutely. There's lot, lots of data in elections. <laughs> so uh, stepping back to the, uh, just looking at the 2020 election, Matt, what, what did you think about our, our election, in particular the presidential election? Uh, well, the presidential election was, was uh, is good in the outcome. You only need to win by one vote. And uh, we, we, we've, we've uh, seen that, that at least Joe Biden seems to have won by more than that, but uh, uh, not by a lot more than that in some ways. You know, when you look at uh, how close things came in a number of states, it was in many ways very disappointing, even though the outcome is, is good. But uh, I, was, I was quite disappointed by lots of, lots of voters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is certainly interesting. And we... Uh, hopefully can learn from this. And, um, you know, I tr try to be optimistic about, you know, why people may vote in a certain way and, and hope that we can bring the country more together in the future, because I'm sure that we share many similar common values. But thinking about that, the election, I wonder, Matt, you know, what learning opportunities do you think exist in terms of, you know, science and data that this election kind of provides us? One of the most interesting things that's happened again here with our with our polling data and looking at these forecasts of of who they thought was going to win and how it percentages was things were going to go by and it really gives us a chance to to think about uncertainty to think about how we had some quantification but there there were uncertainty bounds on there and uh, um, when people see those those projections they often just see the number and they don't see those bounds on there and that's a very common part of the 
progression, the the developmental progression of data analysis that we that we talk about, and uh, you know, NGSS tries to move us along, moving, getting from one level of understanding of data analysis to the next, to the next, to the next, and and uh, I think that. Uh, we all we all need to, to move a little bit on there. Even myself, as I, I saw those numbers, I was also seeing the the, the main number and not the uncertainty. And I should have been looking at everything. Well, and you know, um, I, I follow the five thirty eight website with Nate Silver, and I've been look. I was looking at those numbers for the last few months pretty carefully, and he was also, of course, cautioning us and reminding us about the uncertainty. And yet I still think we were, you know, they said, oh, if, if Trump was to win it, we'd have a larger error, a larger difference compared to what we expect um, than we did last election. And I think in a few states, the numbers are a bit different than even what we thought was the typical uncertainty bound. So there's probably something else to learn there, too, about how we do polling, which I think is, is interesting. Uh, does NGSS, you said NGSS helps move us forward in that space. Um, in terms of thinking about uncertainty. And is there particular areas that teachers can focus on in respect to that and look towards some guidance from NGSS? Well, one of the things that's sort of in the NGSS, but not necessarily as emphasized as some people would like is, is this really this discussion of the nature of science and how all of our understanding is is tentative. It's based upon revision and and the uncertainty in our data is kind of part of that nature of science. And I would argue that that we probably don't spend enough energy on that within what's defined in the standards. Maybe that's because that level of understanding is above the the twelfth grade, you know, grade band. Maybe that's a college level of understanding. Um, I'm not entirely sure exactly where we would fit that in, but I do do know that that there are a lot of people that wish that we spent more time looking at nature of science sort of issues within the within the standards. And just for our listeners and myself too, I mean, I've seen reference to nature of science in the science and engineering practices or cross-cutting concepts. But how would you explain that again to, uh, to a lay person? Yeah, there are things that are not necessarily encompassed in, in the aspects of science disciplines. It's more about how scientists think about things, which we sort of say is cross-cutting concepts, but the cross-cutting concepts is, is really how scientists think about scientific ideas. Uh, there are some other aspects of the nature of science that are even bigger and more meta, if you will, uh, that we have to think about. So it's things like, how do we do science as people? Uh, we interact with other, there's a lot of interaction with other people and, and science is a human endeavor uh, that involves all the good things and bad things about that, that really doesn't get fit into neatly into any of those categories of, of the SCPs or the CCCs. There's this idea that we're always subject to revision that, that actually is encompassed in some of those, of those SCPs, but it's, it's not the focus in such a way that I feel like this idea of, of, what does it mean to do science always means that we are we're never proving anything we're always just trying to work with what we have and and move forward in things and, and i think that 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 aspect of science is, as a process is a little bit brushed under the under the table ngss is more concrete uh, in its practices uh, at least how it's spelled out explicitly many instructors do a fantastic job of incorporating these ideas and they are there's a whole appendix devoted to the nature of science so it's not like this is something that that we don't want people to be doing in the ngss it's just something that doesn't get top billing if you will in a lot of the the, the work that we're seeing 
So would you encourage uh, some of our teachers who are listening now to go look at that appendix? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. I'm trying to think about how, as you are giving students real data to look at from every different aspect, from elections to anything, really thinking about ways that that you can put that reality dose in there of, of you know, not having perfect data and noticing outliers. And, and what do those mean? Does that mean that 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 outlier is the, the problem? Or does it mean that all the rest of the data are the ones that are wrong? And uh, you can really have some rich discussions when you start thinking about things like that. Well, we'll, uh, we'll make sure in our notes to, to link to that appendix in the standards about the nature of science. And I have also found those discussions to be very interesting. And I think we were talking about this some time ago, Matt, how we were, at least I was trying to bring some of this into the graduate course that I'm teaching right now. Um, so that our students can start thinking about what does it mean to, to be a scientist from, from different perspectives. So thanks for, for discussing that a little bit. In terms of thinking about how we talk about an election in the classroom, Matt, do you have any advice for teachers about how we might, you know, this is a, this is a big event. We, we spend four years and every four years our country elects a new government. And so this is a great potential learning opportunity. So what would be good ways for teachers to think about how they might be able to use the election in their own science classroom? Well, our, our approach at NGSS does give us such great opportunities to do that. We really are expected to talk about the interactions between our science and humans and decision-making, and especially in California, where we have our uh, environmental principles and concepts, which are all about complex decisions and weighing all the different things that, that we need to weigh to make those decisions. Uh, and even engineering, for that matter, is, is about you know, weighing, those, weighing different factors, including human dimensions of things. So there's lots of inroads there. But I would say that if you're trying to integrate this policy and what does an election mean, there's a lot of opportunity to really emphasize how these elections make an impact on on science policy or on policies uh, that, that are informed by science, I should say. So things like uh, energy efficiency standards are something that we enact as policy in our country uh, and in our state. And they're, those are enacted by our leaders, uh, sometimes at the executive level, sometimes at the legislative level, uh, and sometimes a combination of the two working together as a mandate from one and implementation by the other. But the bottom line is that so many of those things are kind of under the radar for our students. They don't realize what what role the government plays in their everyday life and making those things happen. And so I think it's a good opportunity to talk about what it looks like when our government changes over. So I, I have a great graph that I show in my class of the CAFE standards. That's the, the fuel economy standards for automobiles and how for decades, I forget if it's decades or maybe a decade and a half or so, but I think it's almost two decades, the, the standards were completely flat. The, the country as a whole, as a policy said, we're perfectly happy with cars the way they are and the efficiency that they have. And then all of a sudden, there's this steep upward slope. And what caused that steep upward slope? Nothing more than an election of a new person who had a new vision and thought that we should be doing something about that. Mm -hmm. and enacted that at the executive level. That was President Obama. And if you continue along on that curve, all of a sudden it flattens out again. And the year it flattens out is shortly after President Trump's inauguration when he changed those rules uh, also by his executive actions. And so you can lo literally looking at these, you're looking at data, you can see where the presidential transitions were and seeing how much of an impact that is. 
I tell my students, every one of our cars could be as efficient as the Toyota Prius. If we had enacted these standards and stuck with them, uh, we'd be almost there uh, to that point. Yeah, and that's, um, I, I kind of think of two things here. One is that, you know, one of the units we have our students looking at energy use in their own home and, you know, looking at appliances like a refrigerator, but to also see that refrigerators 20 years ago were, were not nearly as efficient as they are today because of some standards. But also what you said reminds me of, of how rich the topic of climate is, because now we're, we're seeing that, you know, we're thinking about our government and, and the role that our government plays and how democracy functions in, in this way. So it's um, this issue about climate and, and solving climate change is not an issue that's just solely for the science classroom, but it's, it has great potential for other fields too. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll see teachers and be able to support teachers in looking at these issues, not just from a science perspective. No, totally, that's a great, great point. Now I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but if I'm a teacher thinking, oh, yeah, I would like to bring some of this election materials into the classroom, would there be a particular, and I was going to do a three-dimensional activity or lesson, what might be an SEP and CCC that I might focus on in terms of what, what comes to your mind when thinking about this election and uh, science and engineering practice and cross-cutting concept that might resonate? Okay, well... With uh, with our cross-cutting contrast, I would say right now uh, we've got stability and change going on with with uh, with our uh, democracy. But um, uh, let's let's go a slightly different way of things. Um, I That's think a good my one. <laughs> I think my my appropriate cross-cutting concept is is about cause and effect. Is really trying to emphasize uh, you know what what is this what does this change mean? Uh, what what effects are there from this? And really seeing that drawing those connections one to one and uh, i guess uh from our science and engineering practices we're, we're definitely involving argument from evidence and trying to you know, convince people about things so we we want to probably go with the with the engaging in argument from evidence yeah and i actually think that's a really good one um, and even some of the court battles that are going on right now in a legal setting that is exactly what those legal folks are doing is arguing from evidence or, you know, presenting an argument, hopefully based on evidence that, uh, and in some cases, the judges have been not very swayed by the evidence. And, and so we can see this happening, not just in science, but in other arenas as well, which I think is hopefully how the process should work. Yeah. So, uh, I know that understanding the connection between policymakers and education is challenging. But from your perspective, Matt, you know, what can teachers expect over the next four years in terms of support from our federal government now that we're going to, to see a, a new government? Well, I'm, I'm hoping that we're, we're going to be seeing a dramatically different approach to climate and climate action uh, that will happen. And uh, I'm hoping that that will trickle down to many different uh, aspects of things from from jobs to even supporting education and climate education. And, and so we'll see exactly what that means. But uh, tell me more about what you mean by your question. What sort of, you know, do we, um, if we're at a school that, you know, doesn't have enough funding for new microscopes or for, you know, materials, are we, you know, we, we did hear from the president-elect that uh, we have a teacher in the White House, his wife, and, you know, is there, I, I know this is where the crystal ball is, is really blurry, but do you see any indication that the country may focus or spend 
additional revenue in the education space to support education more broadly than we've seen in the past. I, I'm I'm not super optimistic about that. I'm more optimistic about some of the other structural changes to education, things like reforming student debt uh, and making education more accessible. I think those things are are on the agenda, but you know whether it's in our own individual classrooms. I'm not sure that the federal government is, is going to be the saving grace, except that perhaps they might be able to infuse a little bit more money uh, into our COVID emergency mm-hmm. and help uh, you know balance the books that way. But I think that's just going to get us back to back to zero and not not uh, any bonus things. Well, um, we're all going to be watching, and hopefully not just watching, but but getting involved in some ways as well. Absolutely. Don't don't watch. Don't just watch. This is not this is not a spectator sport. That's <laughs> spoken from a true activist uh, family there. So that's exciting. So now let's turn our attention to climate change in the environment, where we, we review some of the latest news in this area and talk about how to bring such topics into our schools and classrooms. So I think we just briefly touched upon this map, but the obvious question for us to discuss is how will our focus around climate change in the environment change over the coming election cycle? What do you think we're going to see? Well, I have, I, have you looked at, I saw just a news headline about, uh, I think, 15 different executive orders that, uh, that Biden is planning related to climate. Have you looked at any of those? Uh, I have not yet. I've only heard some things from some, uh, I'm on some lists and there's been some discussions, but I, I have heard that we will re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement as one of those, and, uh, and I'm sure there's a host of That's, others. That, that was definitely listed as the, num- as the number one thing. So yes, uh, so I, I look forward to seeing it. It's on the radar. It's on the radar very, you know, is a very big item, in fact. And so I'm not entirely sure what will actually happen, uh, you know, what the mood will be in the country for for action. But there's a lot of things that the presidential administration can push forward. And we were talking about all the different ways that the the government interprets the laws and or so the executive branch interprets the laws and, and, and implements them to the best of their abilities. And so you know, what is the EPA's role? What does the EPA do? That's something that, uh, that can finally be, be funded and supported and, and uh, really moving forward with regulating CO2 as a greenhouse gas, uh, making sure that we're not fighting that in court, that we're actually doing that, um, ensuring that we have our cafe standards, our, our push towards uh, uh, renewable energy and investments in renewable energy research. Those sorts of things are all definitely in high high visibility, and also really thinking about uh, retraining the fossil fuel workforce. I know that that's a high priority for for the federal government to help support that because uh, we do know that we're going to need to close down a, a whole industry, and mm-hmm. uh, those are workers and Americans and people and families and you know, breadwinners and. And so uh, I think that this administration is very mindful of that, and I'm optimistic that they that that's the best way forward for everybody. That everybody's going to get on board with doing with doing that, with finding a new road for for workers that that are being displaced. I certainly hope so. That's a great point. You know, I'm on a, a list of climate change professors from around California who are working on different aspects of climate change mitigation and adaptation. And there's been a lot of discussion over the last week or so about what Biden should do. And education came up on the thread over the last few days. And one point was that there was a role for both informal and formal education. So Matt, what would you suggest for the Biden administration in terms of education and climate change? 
Well, I know that the, 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 we don't have a nationwide curriculum or even that much uh, in terms of the formal education. There's not a huge amount that the uh, federal government can do without really making some drastic changes, you know, like they did for the No Child Left Behind law. And that was actually done through the legislature with everybody's bipartisan support at some point. So we're probably not going to see major changes to formal education. I think there's maybe going to be some exciting opportunities, small infusions of, of special project money that they'll be able to support things, especially through NSF. And we'll be able to see new new things coming down that pike. But Or, or maybe even NASA. Yeah, and NASA as well, of course, yes. And and the USGS also funds a lot of research uh, to independent people and uh, not usually about education, but maybe they could. <laughs> I know that uh, was something that I was pushing for when I was working there, uh, really hoping that they would devote more energy to education. They do a lot of great things, but there's a lot more room for improvement, especially among uh, that really wonderful agency. But uh, other things is just really thinking about Elevating the the status of climate is really that's what it's always been about. It's never been about you know, don't we we don't have the curriculum or we don't have the this or the that. It's been about just making it so that people see this as a priority. And I think that's that shift is so important and it's it's happening. And that I do have optimism, a lot of optimism about. Well, the four main priorities that President-elect Biden has mentioned: COVID, the economy, social justice issues, and climate change. So that is uh, certainly, you know, putting it at a level of these are our, our top priorities in the country. And so that is really heartening to see. Okay, so let's shift to our final segment where we talk about burritos and everything related to burritos. I've got some bitter news to share with you about my favorite local taqueria has a for sale sign outside the restaurant. And I have to admit, I was pretty sad. I haven't had the guts oh, to go no. inside. Yeah. I haven't gone and actually talked to them and asked them what's going on, but I've been thinking of, you know, it could go any day or maybe it's a, a month or so, but maybe I should, you know, go try every veggie burrito on their menu before they close down in honor of them. Um, we just have reached the purple level, uh, our county, so everything is to go again. But I do want to honor this place, which has been a service to our community and myself, for uh, many years. But Matt, have you ever lost a favorite burrito place and, and how did you deal with that? Oh, I have, I, I mean, there have been places that have opened and closed, but really it's more that I've moved away from 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 long lost places. And uh, uh, so I've always been able to to go back there when I've when I've uh, visited, visited places that I used to live. And that's always been so, so heartening and it feels so much like, like being home again. And uh, so uh, having a place that's so dear or close is that's going to be a hard one, Eugene. Yeah, well, I'm going to tell them that we're going to continue to support them as long as they're as long as they're here. And I I do feel we've talked about this before on our show. I do feel that this is obviously a very tough time for for many small businesses, especially restaurants. And we just got a message on our phone today, alert that we are now on this purple level of California. And uh, and so there's no indoor restaurant eating. It's gotten cold, so there's less outdoor because of, of the temperature. And this this little place doesn't have. I think it's got two seats outside. It's just a tiny place. Um, but maybe the community can keep it going, and maybe they're they're just leasing their place. So I'll I'll 
update everyone in the future. It might not be as grim as I think. But I think that's a good place for us to stop. Thank you for joining us at Ask Matt, where we explore NGSS, science education, and the environment, and sometimes things like the election. With education mm -hmm. expert and nice guy, Matt Delasio. Thanks, Matt, for the great chat. See you next time. Absolutely.